0: Somebody, Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media, Incorporated. This podcast investigates the unsolved death of federal prosecutor Jonathan Luna in 2003. It is a true story. But the opinions of the hosts and interviewees are simply that—opinions, not facts. And the credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. previously on Somebody Somewhere.
1: He was working late crafting plea deals when without his glasses, he left the courthouse and drove a mysterious path through four states.
2: I mean, he was a bright light. He was a special one. with so much potential.
1: The question is what Luna was doing after he withdrew money from ATM at a Delaware rest stop until he entered the Pennsylvania Turnpike.
3: He had this maniacal obsession about punctuality.
1: The way this case evolved, half of the people working on the case thought it was homicide, half thought it wasn't. It was suicide.
4: This is Episode 2 of Season 3, Stash House Records. I'm your host, David Payne.
2: Since a federal prosecutor was found dead in rural Lancaster County, we will find out who did
5: this. Was he trying to stage some sort of attack and went too far? I'm a crook, you a crook, he'll crook. everybody'll you in
4: If you're like most people, this COVID crisis has forced a reflection on what's important to you family, health, values. Some people are blessed enough that they had introspection before a pandemic thrust it upon them. Jonathan Luna's friends and colleagues paint a picture of a man who most always had his priorities in the right place:
2: He's just a good guy. I mean, people really liked him. He was always up-
4: Jonathan's best friend in law school, Reggie Schuford, was reluctant to talk to us at first, but he realized that Jonathan needed a voice to speak for him.
1: Now, oftentimes when situations like these happens, where someone's murdered, people become one-dimensional, really, and it's their death that tends to define them. But if you wouldn't mind, share more about his values and beliefs.
2: Happy to do that, and if I'm being honest, Jonathan's death almost 17 years ago is still deeply painful for me. I agree to kind of talk about him selectively in part to preserve his legacy beyond the fact that he was killed and to present a more nuanced perspective on who Jonathan the man and person was. I mean, people really liked him. He was a runner, a marathoner, was into physical fitness, and he um, was gentle and thoughtful and upbeat and optimistic and hopeful. loved his family. I mean, when we were roommates, he actually left law school early and took, I think, a year off because his dad was stricken with cancer and he took a year off to go spend time and help nurse his dad back to health. So family came first.
4: Beyond his family first values, Jonathan also had principles and the strength of character to stand behind them. And while we never met, our legal paths actually did cross in the late 90s on one of those principles. In 1995, when I was serving as in-house counsel to Ted Turner's Atlanta Braves, I was resistant to efforts to change the team's name. Jonathan, though, was advocating for change, writing a letter to the Baltimore Sun criticizing the racism inherent in MLB Indian mascots.
2: See, ahead of his time, right? When you consider the same debates we're having today, ahead of his time.
4: He wrote, The difference between Native Americans and African Americans or Jews is that Native Americans make up barely 1% of the U.S. population and compared with the other two groups have virtually no political power. Should population or political clout determine the level of tolerance we are willing to give racist imagery? That is quintessentially who... Who he was. 25 years ago to, you know, almost to the day when we're we're replacing the Redskins' names and those discussions are happening.
2: And of course, he loved sports. So he would have, you know, that's mixing the love of sports with the love of justice, like bringing that together. So I'm not at all surprised. And he was an excellent writer.
4: But wherever you stand on these issues, and I'm big enough to say I think I was wrong those many years ago, There's no question that being a stand-up, principles-driven guy within a large organization is hazardous duty. Jackie Rodriguez-Coss is a retired former AUSA from Baltimore and Puerto Rico. She worked closely with Jonathan and saw firsthand how that played out with him.
0: It got to the point where at some point, DiVaggio locked him out of the office, which is like an extreme measure to take against an assistant U.S. attorney.
4: The man locking Jonathan out of his office was the U.S. attorney for Maryland, their boss, Tom DeBagio. And the question was how and why the two men got to that point, something the newly appointed DeBagio never publicly explained.
0: I remember everyone being really excited about him coming back because he had been a prosecutor in the office, and so he was kind of seen as one of us. I know
4: but despite that initial enthusiasm for the appointment of Tom DiBaggio, Koss paints a picture of an administration that set about to methodically discriminate against people who didn't fit the mold or tow the new party line. It was exactly the type of environment that would push up against Jonathan's values and sense of justice, and would get him crosswise with his new boss.
0: I know I filed an EO complaint. I know Jonathan filed an EO complaint against him. I know of at least one other African-American at USA who filed a complaint against him, who settled in her favor. But I understood that he targeted minority AUSAs in that office after he, he came in. Eventually, I know he was asked to step down by the Department of Justice. I don't remember, you know,
4: I wasn't- Jonathan, who had been recruited by the previous U.S. attorney, Lynn Battaglia, suddenly found himself targeted by the incoming administration. And having reviewed all his case files, I didn't see anything that would suggest a valid reason for it. I was the only Hispanic
0: assistant U.S. attorney at the time. And I know that that was a big factor for Lynn. She discussed it with me in the interviews, that she was affirmatively trying to diversify the office because it was not very diverse. But we had something like 65 attorneys. And like, you know, there were no Hispanic assistant years attorneys. And I want to say there were a handful, and when I mean a handful, maybe about five African-American assistants.
4: But it doesn't appear to have just been his race that potentially put him in the crosshairs of his new boss it was equally likely to have been his political views.
0: It was a very political office, the attorney's office in Maryland. Contrary to what my experience had been in San Juan, this office was very different. I quickly learned that it was considered to be a bit of a stepping stone for people that wanted to get into higher ranking positions within the department in Washington, D.C. I also quickly learned that people knew very openly who was a Republican and who was a Democrat. I remember being like openly asked, you know, about my, my political persuasion. When I came in, I
4: remember and it also wasn't just the prosecutors being asked about their political beliefs that was troubling; it was the entire question of who was being targeted for prosecution in Baltimore. W. B. A. L. Reporter Jane Miller explains.
0: A really intriguing character in all of this is the then U.S. Attorney Tom DiVaggio. He made news because he wrote a memo to his office that he wanted a certain number of public corruption cases by a certain time, which happened to be the November election of 2004. But he made a lot of news with that because the memo got leaked. and. He wasn't in the office much long after that. And I think he got somewhat of a slap on the wrist by the Justice Department
4: for that behavior. You remember who, right? Who the... uh, Who gave him the slap? Who was the attorney general? James Comey gave him the slap. That's
1: right. That's right. That's right.
4: Yeah, that's right. This rare public rebuke of Jonathan's boss by fellow Republican James Comey for politicizing the Justice Department was related to a memo DiBaggio De wrote demanding a quota of no less than three front page worthy public corruption cases against Democratic Baltimore officials prior to the 2004 elections. In effect, he said the quiet part out loud. So, this was DiBaggio's office environment that Jonathan and Jackie Koss were trying to navigate, and it's frankly not surprising. Given what we know about Jonathan's personality and character, that Rock would meet Hard Place.
1: And when you say, Jackie, that he locked him out of the office, what do you mean? Did he tell him not? He physically yeah. couldn't come to the office? Physically could not
0: come to the office. Like he was locked out, escorted out of Department of Justice space and could not come back in.
1: What was told to you about why? So, I don't know. I,
0: I really don't have a recollection of anyone really explaining to me exactly what was going on and why that happened. And my understanding was that he didn't follow the proper protocol in order to take that action and it was revoked and so Jonathan was allowed back into the office. But again, I was not there so I didn't really know the ins and outs of what was going on in relation to that.
4: Whatever the reason that Jonathan was locked out, and whatever the reason he was let back in, investigators would later theorize this tension with his boss would manifest itself in suicide. But from this vantage point, it was hard to see anything of the sort. Jonathan had survived far worse in his life and was a resilient person. And so his work at the office after this episode continued unabated and apparently independent of the internal and external office politics. Including handling a case that provided the perfect metaphor for a law-and-order Republican U.S. attorney, a crackdown on a rap music label that was accused of being a drug distribution front.
1: So, hi, I'm Gail Gibson. I work for the University of Michigan overseeing the Kessler Scholars Program, which supports first-generation college students. In my prior career, I was a journalist, and I worked for a number of years at the Baltimore Sun, including
4: covering... When people talk about the, quote, paper of record in Baltimore, that means the Baltimore Sun. And as the Sun's beat reporter for federal courts, Gail Gibson was the person of record for anything that happened there. Practically speaking, that means perhaps more than any one person. Her stories on this case and Jonathan have colored most outside observers' perceptions than any others. And when Jonathan went missing on the morning of December 4th, 2003, Gibson was predictably on the scene, reporting on the rap music drug case Jonathan was leading.
1: It was a drug case that we were sort of following with just a little curiosity because it had this great name, Stash Records, where they were funneling drug money through a recording studio in a part of Baltimore. I mean, it
4: wasn't the biggest... True to form in the office, the Stash House Records case provided Luna's boss the opportunity for newspaper headlines, showing he was winning both the drug and culture wars of Baltimore in the early 2000s. And Jonathan, either politically offensively or defensively, was also trying to make sure he got credit for the score.
1: It was just kind of an interesting, smaller-scale drug story but had just enough interest that it it would make the paper. The day before Jonathan went missing, he had reached out and said, hey, you'll want to be in court in the morning. They're probably going to plead out. You know, just he wanted to make sure it was going to get some coverage. And so I made a point, put it on my calendar to be there that morning. I I thought that would be a good story that the paper would want to have.
4: Jonathan's call to Gibson the day before he died, which has never before been reported, goes straight to a key issue in his death investigation. One of the supporting planks to the suicide theory was that Jonathan was so distraught about what was happening in the trial and the fact that it was breaking down into a plea on lesser charges, that it was a stressor that drove him to take his own life. But that doesn't appear to be the case at all. Gibson tells us Jonathan was actively seeking out press for this accomplishment. And it wasn't the first time either. Do you remember any specific cases that he reached out to you about and thought you should cover?
1: So Jonathan was an assistant U.S. attorney that was still sort of establishing himself in that office. And a lot of his kind of bread and butter work were you know, heroin cases, gang cases coming mostly out of the drug trade in Baltimore. And the paper was interested in covering those, so it got his name in the paper, and it's that sort of symbiotic reporter and source relationship. You know, in, in all of that, you know, Jonathan was a really charming guy, so he wore his hair a little long and curly, and he had a great smile, and he was chatty. So he was a guy who was just really easy to like. And you found yourself kind of rooting for him in cases where you were, of course, supposed to be, you know, the neutral person sitting on the bench in the back. And I think he had a lot of folks in the legal community there that that were really taken by him and really saw big things ahead for him.
4: And the biggest thing in front of Jonathan in the four days before he died was his Stash House Records case. A win might get him out of the doghouse with his boss, and a loss might be devastating to his career. And so the facts of what happened in that trial, both in and outside the courtroom, would be scrupulously scrutinized by investigators. And who better to do that for us than the man who had a front row seat to Jonathan's last trial?
5: My full name is Archangelo Michael Tuminelli, although I only use the M as Initial. I
4: am from Baltimore. Defense attorney Archie Tuminelli has over four decades of Baltimore court experience. He represented Walter Poindexter, one of the two defendants in the Stash House Records case. Let's talk about the environment in the 2000s of what was going on in the federal court system, criminal cases-wise.
5: In Baltimore, the overwhelming majority of cases being tried were multi-defendant drug conspiracies. So if we could just
4: tee up what that case was about, it was the USA versus Poindexter and Smith. Can you give us a summary of what that case was?
5: The government had a cooperating witness who had been charged himself prior to the indictment of Smith and Poindexter. And, you know, through his cooperation, told the agents that he was working with that he could make buys from those two. There were three controlled buys, two from Poindexter, one from Smith, and the two of them were indicted.
4: A bit of terminology here might help. Despite the headline-grabbing Stash House Records veneer, Jonathan's final case was a run-of-the-mill, buy-bus drug case the FBI used an informant whom they had already arrested, a man named Warren Grace, to roll on people allegedly higher up the drug chain, Dion Smith and Walter Poindexter. And to gather evidence, they would send Grace with marked money to buy drugs from the two men. And when the feds are involved in something as pedestrian as a controlled drug buy, they're going to have overkill. Almost 100 hours of audio and video recordings, surveillance photos the whole shooting match. Exactly the type of evidence that 95% of the time ensures a guilty plea. But that's not what happened here.
5: So both defendants wanted to work out pleas, but the problem with Poindexter was there was a murder that wasn't charged that the government believed he had committed and under the guidelines at that time, if Poindexter had worked out a plea, the judge would be able to consider that, and his guidelines would have resulted in a potential life sentence. So I say, you know, get rid of the murder, give me insurance that you can't use that in writing, and we'll be all right. And he, he kept saying, we can't do that, we can't, I can't get permission for that. Which
4: is really unusual because, you know, you know how that works, right?
5: Yeah, under the guidelines, the court could look at all the behavior that was related to the charge for which the defendant was convicted. The court could sentence a person as if the person were convicted of, of a murder.
4: The related conduct provisions of the sentencing guidelines in effect at the time were one of a prosecutor's biggest arrows. In essence, all you had to do was wait for a defendant to plead guilty and then give whatever information you had about his related conduct to the probation department, who would then write it up for the judge to consider its sentencing. And Jonathan, like all AUSAs, wasn't permitted without supervisor approval to give that up, especially when the related conduct was a murder.
5: I told Jonathan, look, you have to give me assurances that if he pleads, when we get the sentencing, you're not going to try and use the murder and say the murder was related. And at that point, Jonathan is like really pressing me to work this case out. So what do you say? I'll give you verbal assurances? I just can't do no, it. now, what He told me he, he just couldn't get approval not to do that. So he wanted a plea without any kind of assurances about the murder.
4: Jonathan's reluctance to come to terms on a plea agreement has many possible interpretations, particularly in light of his imminent death. The most obvious is that he was simply following U.S. attorney guidelines prohibiting him from waiving related conduct for an alleged murder. But he also could have had reluctance going to a supervisor, for approval in a situation that might make him look weak with his boss. And there was a very specific reason why Jonathan may have been concerned.
5: And he he kept saying we can't do that. We can't I can't get permission for that. Did
4: Jonathan want to do that or and he was getting Jonathan
5: blocked. Jonathan wanted to do that. But the problem was I don't know to what extent Jonathan was disclosing the information to his supervisor, something that I haven't mentioned yet about this case, which you probably know about, is with regard to Grace. Right.
4: Grace, as in Warren Grace, the cooperating witness that the government had flipped to buy drugs from and then testify against his former friends, Walter Poindexter and Dion Smith. You see, even though the government had 100 hours of audio and videotape to support their Stash House records case, they would need Grace to testify, to authenticate the voices and give the tapes context. And Grace's credibility would be a key issue determining whether Walter Poindexter and Dion Smith would spend the next 50 years in jail.
5: We knew that Grace, during the period he was cooperating with the government, He was placed on electronic monitoring, but he was home. And he was under the supervision Ah. of the FBI at that point. Yeah, that right. And Ken had filed a motion to ask the court to order the pretrial services division to show us their file on Grace. Which
4: was unheard of. Ken is Ken Ravenel, the defense attorney for the other co defendant, Dion Smith.
5: I can tell you, uh, as someone who practiced all the time in federal court, that would have been a laughable motion.
4: The timing, outcome, and consequences of this ordinarily laughable motion in Jonathan Luna's last case are potentially critical to understanding his state of mind the night he died. The Stash House Records case began on Monday afternoon, December 1st, 2003. The defense attorneys gave their opening statements after the lunch break, and Jonathan called Warren Grace as his first witness, leading him through preliminaries and setting the stage for him to authenticate the recorded drug buys. And it was in that context that Attorney Ken Ravenel made his laughable motion to get Grace's pre-trial records at the end of the first day. Do you think Ken had information from pre-trial, someone leaked to him? I don't
5: know if he, I don't know if he did, but look. You could never get that information. No no judge down there would order that. So it wasn't the sort of thing that defense attorneys would typically even ask for, but can ask for it. Judge
4: Quarles was a former prosecutor himself and a hard-nosed judge. He wasn't about to let two curious defense attorneys go sniffing around in what were essentially court files relating to a witness without more cause but he promised Ravenel he would have pretrial services prepare a summary of Grace's pretrial violations for the following day. With that out of the way, the judge then took his impatience with the trial's pace and Luna's preparedness out on the young lawyer. Here's the court reporter, who sat literally in the middle of that crossfire that afternoon.
3: My name's Ned Richardson. I was a federal court reporter for years and years. I saw many a trial in my day, and I, I love my work, and I made a lot of friends, and I messed it terrible when I left. So,
4: all told, was- Former court reporter Ned Richardson is retired now, and although he has a tendency to romantically reminisce about his job, he's got a pretty clear memory of what happened in the Stash House Records case. Do you remember much about the dynamic at play between the judge and the defense attorneys and
3: Jonathan—was it tense? Yes, than, it was what, tense. Yeah, I don't know why. What in the world? See, by the time I get in court, it just seemed like uh, bombs were bursting in air, and I thought, "What the? I don't understand. I couldn't get into my head. What's going on?" is it between is- the, de- the defense attorneys and Luna, or the judge and Luna? Mostly more with the judge. I don't know why. I thought something terrible must have happened because he would just lean on him, you know. It was like sometimes I felt like he was going out of his way. And I thought, well, I we get through this all in one piece? I thought I was going to get hazardous duty pay. I thought, good heavens, what is going on?
4: What was happening was that the judge was frustrated with Jonathan's performance that day primarily because he perceived that Luna was wasting his and the jury's time by being both unprepared and by not corralling his evasive cooperating witness, Warren Grace, to stay on message. And Judge Quarles was notorious for his obsession with time.
3: Well, I had the misfortune of being assigned to Judge Quarles, and that was the saddest day of my life, I think. I went into him, and he had this maniacal obsession about punctuality and if you came into his court and you were five ten minutes late you were dead meat i mean that was it that was like a capital offense he would yell at the lawyers told i thought my god did he give me guys five minutes late you know well we would start without him we would actually start without an attorney it just got on the nerves
4: And even though Judge Quarles would later say he was a mentor to Jonathan, during this Stash House Records case, he showed no favoritism and treated him with the standard disdain he saved for all time-wasting lawyers.
3: But the, the way Jonathan was acting when we got rolling, it was like I looked at him like, oh my God, what the hell did you do? I mean, man, you're, you're in deep crap. <laughs> he had some wrath to uh, deal with.
4: Somebody somewhere will return right after this break. The next day, the second day of the Smith-Poindexter trial, would not go any better for Jonathan. Warren Grace was back on the stand doing his reluctant witness bit, further agitating the time-obsessed judge. And at the appropriate time during direct, Jonathan did what every experienced litigator with a bad witness does. He tried to take the sting out of the expected defense cross-examination. In this case, by asking Grace about his pretrial release violations.
5: You know, he's wearing a monitor on his ankle. And when Pretrial Services finds out about this, when he slips the bracelet, Pretrial Services filed a, a report to the court that this guy had slipped his monitor and they were moving the court to remove him from pretrial services supervision.
4: Unfortunately for Jonathan, the more facts he tried to elicit from Grace about what happened when he slipped the bracelet, the worse his witness looked. And as the testimony continued, it wasn't so much Grace that looked bad to the jury as it was Jonathan to the judge. Quarles was becoming increasingly open to defense counsel's arguments that Jonathan had not properly disclosed everything he knew about Grace's actions. And at the conclusion of the second day of trial, the judge would have had enough.
5: And to my surprise, Judge Quarles ordered pretrial to sit down with the two of us and go through pretrial's file.
4: An order that would set in motion a series of events that would culminate and Jonathan's death just 36 hours later. Next time on Somebody Somewhere.
1: I told him right away, you are not getting this file. You're not getting these documents, but you can ask questions.
5: In all the years I've been here, I've never seen anything like this.
1: Charles knew Warren Grace was a shady, shady dude, and that Jonathan should have known about it.
3: Jonathan was so distracted, he couldn't keep it together. And I thought, something is wrong. Jonathan wanted to do that. But the
5: problem was, DiBagio was trying to fire him.
3: So I told him, move. And that's the last time I saw Jonathan alive.
2: There goes the devil me to lie again, but I'm around me, says it's all right to pretend, yeah. that you can get more than you give.
4: Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. Sound design, editing, and mixing has been provided by Resonate Recordings. Original score and voiceover work provided by Hallie Payne artwork provided by Evan McGlynn and Kendall Payne. If you have any information regarding the Jonathan Luna case, please contact us via our website, sbswpodcast.com. And finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps, and we really appreciate it. Thank you for listening.
2: Song. But I just want you to love me. even though I still love money. I need more money.